The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. It also totally reminds me that listening to it, that the last time I heard tabla and harmonium in the sanctuary was in February. Do you remember this, Jonathan? Right before we closed down when we had the memorial service for Ram Das. And in the green room, Larry Brilliant, who was a friend of Ram Das's and organizer of the service, said he'd been up all night. And I said, were you preparing for the service? And he said, no, I was on, because he's an epidemiologist who helped um, end uh, smallpox, worked with the um, UN to eliminate smallpox. He said, no, I was on the phone to China because of this outbreak, this virus. So the music took me back this time we're all beginning to gather to that moment. But also it's a perfect entree into the service because it reminds me of the neighborhood that we lived in, my husband and I, when we lived in Mumbai for two years, and the neighborhood we visit, because a lot of our family is there and we've been visiting for years, that has a park in it that is named for one of the most famous of the Sikh gurus, um, Guru Nanak. And in that same neighborhood, you can drive by a mosque or wake to the call to prayer or see goats in the shops right before a big Eid is around the corner. But it's a Catholic neighborhood historically, and up on the hill, Polly Hill, there's Mount Mary Church. And there in the church is a statue to a Mary who is famous for miracles, and each year there's a big festival that brings people of all different religious traditions to see her. She's one of the goddesses that are said, of all traditions, said to watch out over the city of Mumbai. The city where traditions blend and intersect and there's this wide embrace. Despite all the goddesses watching over it, I would say arguably the biggest religious festival every year in Mumbai, and it's 15 million people, is the annual 10-day festival in honor of the Hindu god Ganesh, Ganesha, who we heard about a little this morning. Ganesh might be among one of the best-known Hindu gods. He's certainly one of the most recognizable. The festival in honor of him is called Ganesh Chaturthi, or Ganpati, and it's happening right now in India. And it will end this next Tuesday, I think it is, on the 21st. Lawrence A. Babb, a retired professor of Asian studies from Amherst College, described the festival in his book, The Divine Hierarchy, saying, the festival occurs in the early autumn when the rains have begun to slacken. Each neighborhood erects a temporary shrine in which a clay image of Ganesh is installed along with elaborate decorations. Here, puja is performed daily and prasad is distributed to families in the neighborhood. Puja, for those who don't know, 
is a ritual that not just Hindus, but also Jains and Buddhists will often perform at a shrine. And prasad? Prasad are the gifts often of fruit or rice or other food or flowers that are offered up, but the food then blessed by the god and some of it, most of it, redistributed back to the people to eat, to share with friends and family so they can bring those blessings home intimately and to those they love. These days in Mumbai, the shrines that Lawrence Babb refers to are in neighborhoods for sure, but not just in neighborhoods. Some people create one in their home or the apartment building next to us used to gather and create one themselves and honor the festival among all the families in the building. The murtis or the images of Ganesh in these shrines, they're believed to embody some of the divine spirit and you can buy them. I have actually some photos for you, so we're gonna try a little experiment this morning. You can buy them in shops like this where they're available, but there are also elaborate competitions in neighborhoods, so you can see larger ones that you could purchase, but again, some that are created with enormous scaffolding like this one. And you can visit, like we did, the workshops that are around the city prior to the festival to get, see them displayed. And then, in the weeks ahead, they're displayed outdoors in these altars. Some are a foot tall or less, and some, like the one when it's out in its shrine, the one we saw in that scaffolding, they're three stories tall. The murtis are supposed to be made of clay, but especially now, there's a push to invite people to whatever they're made of, make them of biodegradable, environmentally friendly materials. These are some of the shrines that we came upon in our walks through neighborhoods. And a smaller one. And then, at the end of the festival, there is a day when parades gather in small groups sometimes, but also famously in large ones where people process joyfully here in the rain. The monsoon isn't completely done with music and dancing, packed with people, many of them going well into the night as 10,000 statues estimated are carried to some body of water, and there are many bodies of water, but the ocean is the most famous in Mumbai where they are immersed. You can see this one being brought by out open car toward the ocean. This huge one being pushed down the street, all to be carried into the water, in this case, Chaupati Beach is where this group is heading. Some little ones being taken out by boat because they will then be immersed in the water and dissolve away. There's Lila and I, my daughter, at the beach at Chaupati. What you can't really see, but I wish you could in the background are the heads of statues, the big ones still having not fully dissolved and others being carried down by groups of people. 
And so Ganesh is dissolved into the ocean, this god who was made from sandalwood or mud by Parvati, it is said, who comes to be with you for a while, is dissolved back into mud and returns, it is said, to his home in Mount Kailash. Why do so many people gather for this festival? What does it mean? Well, Ganesh, as you heard, is a wonderful god, and he's popular for so many reasons, I imagine. He's so appealing, always shown pot-bellied with Indian sweets, ladus in one of his four hands, topped with that oversized elephant head. If you look closely, he should only be shown with one tusk, the other broken off, and there are many stories about how that happened. One is that he was taking dictation for the Mahabharata and his quill broke and not wanting to forget anything, he broke off the other tusk, the one tusk, so that he could continue so noble to take the dictation so the story was recorded. But another version says that the moon was poking fun of him one night and he got irritated and so he broke it off and threw it at her and that's what created the craters in the moon. So Ganesh maybe is a bit fallible like we are and full of possibilities for noble behavior too. Created amidst tumult and trauma, but also out of hope and love. And as you heard, he was blessed at the end of the story of his creation by his father, Krishna, who, along with his mother, deemed that this god would grant happiness. More so, the tradition expands that he would bless all new beginnings in life and bring happiness by also removing obstacles to our way in all ventures. He was made to be the god of wisdom, the deity who looks after scholars and writers. Everyone has at least one good reason, right? To want Ganesha's spirit brought renewed into their lives for another year. When we brought our first home, one of my husband's best friends, who's Hindu, brought us a rose quartz statue of Ganesha. This was, after all, a new beginning for us. And our friend told us to placed the murti somewhere where it had full view of the front door of our home so that it could keep watch to keep the blessings flowing, I imagine, and the obstacles remaining outside. For years, it stood on this kitchen ledge as it has through each of our moves, blessing each of our homes in turn. And my relationship with this murti this presence has, I will admit, changed over the years. <clears throat> I realize how ununitarian universalist in some ways maybe this is. It occurred to me that as Unitarian Universalists and most mainstream Protestants, which is where we draw some of our lineage, there is nothing analogous, I don't think, to what you have in Hinduism and to some degree in Catholicism. There is no religious pantheon that you can reach to for particular kinds of help. There are no altars 
in our tradition or the making of them that you can lay things on as a ritual way of inviting a particular god with a particular portfolio of gifts and calling to partner with you. It's either the one very busy god that you call on who has to look out over illness and war and childbirth and seasonal harvests and everything. It seems unfair sometimes to ask that God to pay attention <clears throat> to an obstacle in our lives. Or we lay it at the altar, <clears throat> excuse me, of the human forces of willpower and surrender and ingenuity in this life. In many ways, for me and for many of us, all of that is often enough. But not always. It didn't happen overnight. In the beginning, while cutting flowers that I had brought in from the yard or from the store, I'd lay a flower at Ganesha's feet or cut a piece of fruit among the fruit that we were cutting for ourselves and lay it there too. Maybe it was having seen all the altars in India that are always so rich with flowers and offerings that this Ganesh statue on our windowsill seemed kind of bereft without it. But also somehow this presence that was asked to watch over all that came through our door, it seemed to deserve some care and some respect. Well, and then came the mornings when standing at the sink as the sun was breaking through night, cleaning out the coffee pot from the day before, as I prepared to brew the morning's fresh pot, I would look out the window and I would take in the weather, and I would think about the day ahead. And some days the day would feel joyful and it would feel full of rich potential, and some days it wouldn't feel quite so much that way. Some days I would feel heavy, blocked by something I knew that I would have to face, or pessimistic about something even before the day began. And it started, thinking that and looking up. I mean, here is this God who is commissioned and asked and known for removing obstacles. Well, let me offer the burden up. So standing there in front of Ganesh, I'd imaginatively set the burden at his feet. I'd set the intention that the obstacle be removed or maybe just softened a little made more generous, more part of the generative possibilities of the day ahead. And then I'd step out into the day that faced me. Of course, being able to name what feels like it's getting in our way, in the way of our fruitfulness or our joy, and being able to name what hope we have for how that might change is powerful. In and of itself, naming is powerful. 
As Einstein once wrote, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about solutions. Similarly, my mornings at the sink, noticing that sinking feeling and asking what's in your way and what would it mean to have it moved out of your way and what would a better day look like? That was a powerful process of the kind I think Einstein is trying to name because sometimes the solution is one we can participate in if we just know what the solution might look like. But maybe there's something else at work too. It can be powerful, I think, to ask a larger force to partner with you, to hand over your burdens to the larger mystery of life when you cannot see a way forward, as so often we can't in a moment. And what better force than the elephant-headed God who's supposed to bring happiness and remove obstacles? If he can't do it, at least you brought the best in to help you do the job. After all, as Sam noted, not everything we wish to have moved out of our lives will move. Sometimes only our perspective on the thing can change. And opening ourselves up to not being alone in the struggling, as Sam's campers also discovered, can be powerful balm when there isn't a lot of balm available. The Quakers have a saying about what happens in life. Way open, they say. Not that it happens all by itself, though I suppose sometimes it does, but that in our prayer and meditative lives, we commit to doing the work of getting in touch with our inner voice, setting intentions that feel authentic, asking whatever it is we ask when we don't want to be alone to be present also to this need or hope or prayer. And then settle back. Not to force things to go our way, but to step into the world with all of that and how often way opens. Not always, but sometimes you Burn it in the fire, that burden, and after the smoke clears, you see a way forward. And sometimes you put a murti in the waters, and when it dissolves, something else dissolves in the world or melts in you, and there's this shift. And in a world of heavy burdens, a shift, a lifting, a way open, it can change the way a dawn looks and feels from your kitchen window. And that can be enough to face a new day. So, my friends, is there something that makes your spirit heavy these days when you stand to face the day? And if so, 
What would it mean for it to soften or yield or get out of the way? Offer it up, if you dare, to the elephant-headed god or the fire or the mystery of life or a trusted friend. Set the intention, I invite you, that it move over just a little to the side and offer it up and look for way open in the world. One that will help you move past it or just through it. Then, if you dare, imagine yourself singing and dancing your way to the ocean with others who are determined to be liberated from one burden or another and seize joy and new beginnings. And may the spirit of the season meet you at the water's edge and be yours, be ours. May it be so. A few years ago, I was a camp counselor for the high schoolers at a UU summer camp. There was a nightly worship, and it was always youth-led. Some of them felt like normal UU services with breathing meditations and joys and concerns. Some of them felt like normal summer camp experiences with games and icebreakers. But as the week went on, some of those worship services were deeper and more spiritual than any other experiences I've had as a UU. One of the services was called Burning Burdens. We all processed out from the dormitories at night into a space with some seats and a campfire. We all had a paper and a pen, and the instructions were simple. Write down a burden on your paper, and when you are ready, simply walk up to the fire and throw the paper with your burden in, burning up your obstacle or whatever you are carrying with you. At first, a few kids just sheepishly walked up, put their paper in the fire, sat back down. But then one person burned their burden and told everyone about it. And by the end, almost every kid followed suit, even the ones that had burned their burden silently at the start. Sometimes it was only a few words. Sometimes they were speaking for five or 10 minutes. Most of the worship services would take around an hour, but this one lasted until 2 a.m., until everyone had a chance to speak their piece. They had been through a lot, more than you would wish on anyone, much less a kid who had just started high school. And for many of them, the burdens that they burned were obstacles that were dominating their lives, that they had no idea how to fix, that they had never told anybody about. And this group at a summer camp, this group that didn't even know each other's names a week before, this group was where they had enough trust that they could open up and be vulnerable. And after they were vulnerable, this group was a support network. They reminded each other of hope. They reminded each other of friendship. And even if they didn't do anything different after that night, 
when they were throwing their burdens into the fire, they hurt each other. Fire is a powerful metaphor. In this worship and burning burdens, fire represented catharsis and cleansing, burning away the parts of ourselves that we don't need anymore so that we can be more pure, more whole, so that we have room to grow. But that isn't all. Fire can be a beacon on a hill to light the way out of a dark situation. It can be a community gathering place with s'mores and songs. It can be safety. And it did bring change. The next day, some of the kids talked to their parents about their burdens. Some of the kids were able to get help. And some of them just felt better and more free after casting their burdens into the fire. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.